Um, so I want to kind of start our time a little bit differently than we normally do. Um, you don't have to do it just yet, but I'm going to ask everyone in a minute to um, take a deep breath, close your eyes, and bow your heads. And um, when I do that, I'm going to ask you guys a series of questions. And if the question kind of applies to you, I'm just going to ask that you um, raise your hand. Um, so let's go ahead and do that. Just take a deep breath, close your eyes, bow your heads. Um, I will add these, these questions are a little bit deeper in nature. Um, and so you might be hesitant to kind of raise your hand, but you just have to trust that everyone around you is closing their eyes <laughs> um, and has their heads bowed. Um, and if you raise your hand for one of the questions, just keep it raised for that the whole time. So raise your hand um, if you're experiencing some sort of chronic illness or disease or some sort of physical ailment that just kind of won't go away, whether it's been two weeks, a month, two years. Keep your hand raised. Raise your hand if you've experienced hurt or isolation from Christians or, or people who kind of claim to be Christians. Raise your hand if you uh, wrestle with anxiety, whether it's clinical anxiety or just some sort of feeling of anxiousness or depression or um, you struggle with suicidal thoughts or maybe just an overwhelming sense of stress day in and day out. Raise your hand if you're just having a hard time experiencing joy in certain aspects of life, or joy in almost any aspect of life. So um, keeping your hands raised, raise them a little higher if you wouldn't mind. Keeping your hands raised, I'm going to ask you to trust me. Uh, I'm going to ask you to open your eyes and look around on the count of three. One, two, three. This is pretty much everyone in this room. You can put your hands down. Everyone in this room is experiencing, in some way, shape, or form, something that seems to contradict God's promises. Those of you who are sick have to grapple with the psalmist who says that it's the Lord that restores you from your illness. Those of you who feel isolated or alone have to question the promise that Christ has for us that he's with us always until the end of the age. Those of you who struggle to feel joy in some sense have to kind of uh, navigate through the fact that the Apostle Peter, he promises us that if we love Christ, we have inexpressible joy. And so everyone in this room is going through something or has gone through something that might, understandably, kind of make them question God a little bit or doubt God and his goodness and his desires or ability to fulfill his promises. And how God responds to these doubts and these questions and how we respond to his response are, I would argue, probably one of the most, if not the most important things we will ever think or do. And in this passage that we just read, Abram finds himself in this exact position. If you've been with us for a few weeks um, or a few months, you know we're going through the book of Genesis. And the past three or four weeks, we've been kind of honing in on the story of Abram or Abraham. Um, and his family, and just kind of how God is working in and through his life. Um, and back in Genesis 12, three chapters prior, which is really 10 years prior, um, God calls Abram from his home, right? Tells him to leave everything he knows, everything he owns, um, and, and he makes him this promise. He says, Abram, I will make uh, you a great nation. I will give you lots of children. And he says, I promise to give you this great land. And Abram trusts him and believes God, and he listens to God, and he kind of leaves his home country. And for the next 10 years, um, he walks with God, and he experiences the same kind of ups and downs that we often do. And then we come to our passage, Genesis 15. And um, we see maybe one of the most interesting and beautiful pictures painted of God so far in Genesis. 
I think it'd be interesting if we could look back like 2,000 years, 3,000 years, like 800 BC, and um, look into a, a Jewish family's living room at the time, their home, and um, we see the children and the mother and the father, the Ima and the Abba, and um, it's after dinner. Maybe it's a cold January night. Um, they're in the living room. The, the fire is crackling in the background, and as they do every night, the parents read them a little bit of, of the Torah, of Genesis. And um, they come to this part of the story. I think one thing we're kind of missing is that um, the, the new listener, and maybe this is you if you're here for the first time, this story, this interaction between Abram and God would have actually knocked, their, knocked them off their feet. Right? They would say, Abram said what to God? And then conversely, maybe even more shockingly, God said what back? It would be almost unbelievable, unfathomable. Right, that when Abram brings his questions and his doubts, when Abram struggles to believe the promises of God, when you bring your questions and your doubts, when you struggle to believe the promises of God, we see in an unexpected way that in this moment, God reveals himself as extremely approachable and extremely personal. That's what we see in our passage. That's our main point. That's kind of our main takeaway for today. Super simple. God is approachable and God is personal. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, I I just kind of challenge you with this as we look at this passage, as we talk about these things. Just kind of in your heart of hearts, doesn't this sound desirable? Like, we all come in with some kind of connotation of God and view of God and what we think he is. Um, But as Christians, we, we do believe that God reveals himself as he is in the Bible. And so my challenge is just as the Bible describes God in this passage, as we look at these things, is that not desirable? And I'll fully admit, just because something's desirable doesn't mean it's true, but it's something to think on. And we'll look at this idea, God is approachable and God is personal in two ways. Any guesses? First, God is approachable. Second, God is personal. So first, we'll look at God is approachable. In other words, God welcomes our doubts and our questions. God invites us to himself as we are. In Christ, God is a safe space. Secondly, we'll look at the fact that God is personal. What I really mean by that is I'm really kind of asking the question, how does God relate to us? And what we see in this passage is we see a compassionate, very merciful God who is ultimately covenantal. So first, God is approachable. If you aren't steeped in the Bible or you kind of maybe... um, came up in some sort of religion that painted God as particularly distant. Um, These two ideas of of this this powerful God and approachability might not seem to mix together. And interestingly, studies show that there's actually a direct correlation between um, status and approachability. Right? So uh, the higher the status, the less less approachable people typically are. Not everyone, but typically. When I say status, I mean like socioeconomic, fame, wealth, influence. Kind of take your pick. And I think we understand that. I think everyone's heard a story of some famous person or athlete, and it's like, yeah, they have a lot of money and a lot of fame, but he's like really a jerk. Like he's a jerk if you met him. And then conversely, the opposite is almost unexpectedly true, right? I think like we hear the opposite as in, um, oh, this, 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 this woman, she's a great artist, and she has a lot of money and connections and influence, but she's like the most down-to-earth person I know. She's very approachable. And it's almost like society expects people with status not to be approachable. 
which is partially, when you consider that, why it's so stunning that God reveals himself as completely approachable. Right? This is the same God who in Genesis 1 created everything we see and don't see. This is the same God who has the power and the decision-making ability to rightly execute judgment and flood the earth. The same God that um, a few chapters earlier, we see him come down and uh, a Tower of Babel separate people across the nations. This same God with all this power, all this influence, and he's very approachable. Look at this interaction in verses 1 through 6. First, notice God identifies himself in verse 1. He hasn't done that yet in the Bible thus far. He utters the, the, the first phrase in the Bible that's the most repeated command throughout Scripture. Fear not. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. That's also the first I am statement in Scripture. Like we think about the I ams, I think we think of um, you know, God in Exodus saying, I am, I am. I am who I am. Or we think about Jesus' I am statements, right? I am the bread of life. Things of that nature, but realizing the first time God uses this statement, he says, I am your shield. In other words, God is coming to Abram in a way that is approachable and gentle and saying, Abram, don't be afraid. I am the one protecting you. And I'm the one upholding your promise. And I'm the one that's going to fulfill this. This is still going to happen. Happen. And Abram's response, remember, uh, rewind to the, the living room, the, the Jewish family's living room in 800 BC. It's, it's stunning. You wouldn't think thus far in the story of Genesis, the first 15 chapters, that someone would talk back to God like this, or that someone would interact with God like this. What does he say? Or he questions it. He says something along the lines of, God, I've, I've heard this before. And we're still in the same spot 10 years later. And notice God doesn't scold Abram. Right? He doesn't say, did I stutter? No, what does he do? He's gentle and compassionate and reassuring. And Abram, with complete, like, unveiled emotions, unveiled feelings about this, kind of in nervousness and in fear, even though he's just told, don't be afraid, and maybe he has sort of confused tears in his eyes. He says, but God, you said you would do this. What will you give me that isn't useless if I can't pass it on in my family? The family that you promised me and I have yet to receive. Abram approaches God with doubts and questions. And he approaches God with a nervousness in that. And look, the, the, the correlation is pretty direct, right? Like some of us here have doubts and questions. Almost all of us here have doubts and questions. Raise your hand if you've ever had a question or a doubt or any kind of inkling about what is happening here in the Bible. Should be everyone, right? And I think, you know, sometimes it's a little bit bigger than like, I'm not sure if this story fits with this. Sometimes it's like a debilitating doubt. Right, like, like, what if all this is a sham? Like, the person we claim to come and worship on Sunday mornings and talk about throughout the week, what if it's all fake? Like, am I, am I really going to stake my life on something that I'm constantly questioning? Am I really going to bet my eternity on something that I'm always going to have things that aren't answered? Doubts, questions. Two things in response to this. Again, to kind of hit home the, the point we're talking about right now, God is approachable. 
not just in the good times, not just in the times of suffering, but in the times of doubt and questioning too. The passage shows us he welcomes our questions. He welcomes that. And for some of you, this is unheard of, right? Some of you came up in um, a family culture or a church culture where if you had doubts, you do not bring those up. You suppress them and you never think about them or you just deal with it internally. You do not bring up the fact that you have questions about the Bible, about God, about how the world works. And while there, there may be a place and a time for, with certain doubts or certain questions, just accepting, I'm just not going to get an answer. Can I just like, gently say that, that, that we are not, we are trying not to be that kind of church. Right? We strive to be a church that's the opposite of that, because I think this passage shows us we have a God who's the opposite of that. That's why we have classes like Life Explored and Exploring Christianity and Christianity Explored. Notice the theme? Exploring. Questions. <laughs> That's so why we have community groups. In part, that's why we have community groups and, and various ministries across the church so that, um, in part, so you can come with your questions and your doubts. Just this past week, my wife and I, we had um, a few people over that attended some of these courses. And, they, and we, all, all we did was open a bottle of wine, and we just said, what are you thinking about? What are you, what are you struggling with? What, what passages are you wrestling through? One of the guys who's a member at this church, a Christian whom I greatly respect, respect, he had a lot of questions about the Trinity. Like, yeah, me too, bro. Like, how does this work? Another guy brought up, he just didn't quite understand why he kind of felt like these good things were happening to him, but he didn't deserve it. And then he looks across the aisle and he sees someone who does deserve good things to happen to them and bad things are happening to them. Another topic was like, how does evolution fit into creation? Like, is this even a thing? There's a group of people with doubts and questions, and God is saying to everyone in that group, all of us can approach him with doubts and questions. Secondly, talking about this group of people, first one is God is approachable. The second kind of piece of advice is that you aren't alone in this. Right? I, just had everyone, I asked everyone to raise their hand earlier, and everyone did it. Right? We all have doubts and questions. Like, I'm a pastor. I went to seminary. I've studied these things deeply. You don't think I struggle when I read that Samson killed a thousand Philistines by himself with the jawbone of a donkey? Like, bro, yeah, checks out. No problem. No. Like, that's difficult. And maybe even deeper than that, like, yes, the stories of the Bible, but sometimes I'm like, yeah, what if Jesus isn't who he said he is? Like, I've had many days where I just, I don't know if it's spiritual warfare or it's just my own doubts and questions. That thought creeps in and it knocks me out for a day. I just, I, it just knocks me out. And here's the important part, though, and this is where Abram's so helpful. It's not that you don't have doubts, it's what you do with them. Are you bringing these doubts to God? Are you bringing these doubts to the scriptures? Are you bringing these doubts to other people? Can I just say one of the most painful things I've kind of seen over the past five, ten years, not that I'm that old, but this seems to be happening like more increasingly, is just seeing people walk away from the faith. Especially friends. Who I walked very intimately with. Deconstructing because, to be honest, they... They feel like they don't have anywhere they can go to ask these questions. They're like, I, I, I cannot share this with anyone. And I surely can't talk to God about it. 
remember one time reading, um, just having this random hour where we went down a rabbit trail of, of interviews from famous people who used to be Christian, um, and reading their interviews, and they just talked about how they aren't Christian anymore, and they really kept throwing out the phrase, it just really seemed like there weren't answers. It really seemed like there weren't answers to fill in the blank X, Y, Z question. And I remember getting like physically mad because I was like, Bro, there, the question you just asked, there are fantastic answers to that. There really are. I'm not saying it's going to satisfy you, but there are answers to the question that you're asking. And more than that, you just admitted you kind of thought through it by yourself. Like you didn't ask God. You didn't ask other people. And so if you're experiencing doubts, make sure you're bringing them to God. It's a weird kind of very subtle form of pride to not do that. You thought about that? These questions that you might have, trying to find the answer on your own. Make sure you're bringing them to God and make sure you're sharing them with other people. Again, that's why community groups are so important. That's why we do life with other people. Yes, there's a lot more to our faith than just getting answers and, and, and working through doubts. But that's a big part of it. So the end of this first section, verses 1 through 6, the finality of it all is really important. Right, we have Abram expressing doubts and questions, and we have God reassuring him. And then we have this little verse kind of tucked in there, verse 6. It's actually one of the most important verses in the Bible, I would argue. Verse 6 reads, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So a more direct Hebrew translation would actually say he trusted the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, he took God at his word. He believed God was who he said he was, and he was going to do what he, was going to do, what he said he was going to do. And because of that, he was made right before God. And we see this verse um, quoted actually a couple of other times in the New Testament. Um, we see it in Romans 4. I'm just going to read this one. Romans 4 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham didn't do anything to receive the promises of God. Abraham couldn't earn righteousness in the eyes of God. It was simply by trusting in God, by faith, that God made him righteous, that he was saved. And so this is actually an answer to the question I kind of hear a lot, talking about questions and doubts, is, is how are people in the Old Testament saved? A very common question, and it's a good one. If the incarnate, fully human, fully God Jesus had not come down to earth yet, not lived his perfect life yet, not died on a cross and rose from the dead, how are people in the Old Testament saved? And the answer is the same way you and I are. By faith. By trusting in God. Ephesians 2.8 shows this. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the New Testament, and the people of God now are saved by the same way, by faith in God. The only difference is that for New, New Testament Christians, it's crystal clear what that means. The, the mode by which, the thing we must believe in is crystal clear. Right, as New Testament Christians, we know that faith in God means faith in Christ. Faith in the fact that Jesus did live the perfect life that we couldn't. Faith in the fact that Jesus died the death that we deserved and then rose from the dead. This is what makes us right with God. 
this very action and then believing in it. Abraham kind of saw a, a shadowy blur or like an outline of kind of what this was. Right? I think Abraham and Old Testament saints, they, they grasp the fact that, that they don't have a clear picture that it is Christ by which this happens, but they have an understanding God is the one who redeems. God is the one who saves. Faith in God is what makes one right. Hebrews 4 kind of clarifies this for us. Not only does it show that, that through Christ we're made right before God, but it also shows us through Christ we can, talking about God being approachable, we can approach God. Hebrews 4, I'm going to read this, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, because we have faith in Christ, we can approach the throne boldly. Because we have faith in Christ, we can approach God. God is approachable. The second thing we see in our passage is, is, is a personal God. That's our second point. God is personal. Now, of course, these two ideas of approachability and, and, and a personal God, like they certainly overlap. Um, we see in the, the first kind of part of the passage, God being compassionate and merciful and gracious. That overlaps with God being personal, for sure. But when I say uh, God is personal, I kind of want to ask, how does God relate to us? Yes, the answer is personally. But kind of behind that, what this passage shows us is that God relates to us covenantally. Covenantally. If you look at verses 7 through 20, you see a similar structure as verses 1 through 6. You see Abram kind of, uh, you see God making another I am statement, right? Um, and then you see Abram kind of bringing forth another question or another doubt. And then you see God uh, responds again with compassion and reassurance. And he does that in two ways, right? He, he kind of makes the statement and then he does an action. So in the first one, we didn't talk about this, but he takes Abram outside. He shows him the stars. He said, if you can count the stars, you'll be able to count your offspring. Just like he did chapters prior. And he said, if you can count the dust, you can count your offspring. And side note, this is just a hypothesis. You want to know why I think, I, I think he did this because... Um, think about the Middle East at night, thousands and thousands of years ago. Can you imagine how many stars you can see? And so not only that, for Abram, anytime he stepped outside now at night, it's a reminder of the promises of God. That's just a hypothesis, though. I like to believe it. It sounds kind of nice and pretty. Anyway, so, so 7 through 20 is a similar structure, um, but the way that, that God responds and the demonstration in which he kind of affirms these things is different. Right? It's almost as if God is saying, okay, I've said these things and I've shown you these things, now I'm going to prove it. And he makes a covenant with Abram, with Abraham. Notice he doesn't write up a contract. He doesn't call up his lawyer. Right? He makes a covenant. If you don't know what covenants are, um, Thomas Schreiner, who's, who's a theologian, he's a scholar, defines it like this. Just a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Now, covenants are actually an extremely important thing in the Bible. It really helps us understand a lot of what's going on. Um, if you've been around kind of Christianity for a while, you've maybe heard of just, it's really helpful to think of the Bible in the terms of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And while that's super helpful, I've also heard on the flip side, it's really helpful to think about the Bible in terms of covenants. Because what covenants do is they really kind of define and clarify the way in which God relates to his people. There are multiple covenants. You remember there's the Noahic covenant, 
that God made with Noah. There's this one, the Abrahamic covenant. There's the Mosaic covenant that he makes later with Moses. There's the Davidic covenant, so on and so forth. And then ultimately there's the New Testament covenant, which we'll talk about in a little bit, that we're a part of. And the reason this is so meaningful, again, is because it really defines with crystal clarity how God relates to his people. And it's not contractually, it's covenantally. Christian author Christopher Watkins, he wrote a, a big book on um, critical theory, biblical critical theory. I haven't read it yet, but it's got raving reviews. Um, but he says this, he's talking about covenants in this, and he says the goal of a covenant is intimacy, friendship, communion, the richest of interpersonal relationships. That's what God wants with us. When he makes a covenant with Abram, when he makes the new covenant with us, that's what he wants with us. Intimacy, friendship, communion, the richest of interpersonal relationships. I'm sure it's helpful to think of a covenant like a marriage. Right? This happens a lot in the Christian world and a little bit outside of Christianity too, but we talk about how marriage is a covenant. Right? It's not a contract. When two people get married, they don't sign the dotted line that says, as long as you fulfill your obligations making over $100,000 a year and as long as you maintain a certain physical physique, then we're good. No. What do they say? For better or worse, for sickness and health, for richer and for poorer, until death do us part. That's a covenant. If you've been coming here and, and you're a member, um, you know that we have a member covenant. Right? We're, we're, we're covenanting with each other. We're promising to stay with each other in a covenant, not a contractual relationship. Right? And that's kind of why we take uh, membership so seriously here. Is that when you take this covenant with other members around you, you're committing to covenant with each other as you live out your faith together. And so, with all this in mind, God makes a covenant with Abram to let him know, this is how I relate to you. And and part of this passage reads odd at first, so we're just going to talk about it briefly, and then we're going to wrap up. Verse 8, But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each other laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Sounds totally wacko to us. Totally nuts. But, in that ancient Near Eastern culture, when God kind of started giving Abram these these instructions, he would have immediately knew what what he was talking about. Um, This is actually something that comes from other cultures outside of the Bible, and is a really good example of God using culture to kind of help people understand what he's doing. Um, But it's a way that you created a covenant with each other, as they would... Um, as odd as it seems to us, they would take these animals and cut them in half, and then each party would walk through the middle of the animals. And what that was saying was, if I don't fulfill my end of this covenant, then what happens to these animals is going to happen to me. And what makes it stunning, then, is look who walks through the animals a little bit later. All right, verse 17, at this point, Abram cut the animals. He's asleep. God made him a promise again. He made it with a caveat that we're not going to dive into. But in verse 17, he says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. In other words, God proved his promises and showed Abram, I am a personal God. Since God was the only one passing through the animals, he's essentially saying to Abram this, if I don't hold up this end of the, if you don't hold up this end of the covenant, the punishment is on me. And if I don't hold up this end of the covenant, the punishment is on me. This God we see in this passage is both approachable and personal. Just like he makes a covenant with Abram, so he does with us. Thousands of years later, right, Jesus would break, break bread and, and pour wine at, at a dinner table with some trusted friends the night before he was crucified. And he would say, my blood poured out for you is the new covenant. The sacrifice that I'm about to make on your behalf, the spilling of my blood, the breaking of my body, is the new covenant that you have with God. Meaning that now you relate to God through Jesus. In his sacrifice, in his life, in his righteousness before God. Only through him do people come to God. Only through him do people relate rightly to God. This covenant we see with Abram is, is, a greater, is a shadow of the greater covenant that is to come through Christ thousands of years later. And so we have a Bible that presents the God as approachable and personal. Not just good vibes. Right? He doesn't just want to make you happy, but he wants to satisfy your soul. And he wants to be in deep covenantal relationship with you. And so if you're here and you raised your hand at the beginning, which is pretty much everyone in this room, or you raised your hand later on and said, yes, I have doubts and questions, know this, Abram raised his hand too. I got some questions. I got some doubts. We've been doing this thing for 10 years and I ain't seen nothing. Nothing from the things that you promised me. And you know what's funny is, is Abram was, was reassured by God, but yet it would still be another 15 years until he received the, the children that he was promised. And he wouldn't even see the land that God promised him. But the crux of this whole story, the crux of kind of your struggles and your questions and your doubts, the crux of it is not the answers you want, but it's the God that lies behind them. And so for you, again, maybe you're in a similar spot. You have questions, you have doubts, you feel like God isn't upholding his promises? Know that there is great comfort in seeking the God behind those things more than there is great comfort in seeking the answers. Doesn't mean you don't seek answers. Seek answers. But know that ultimate satisfaction is not the answer. It's the God behind it. I'm going to close with a quote. C.S. Lewis kind of beautifully captures this. He says, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face questions die away, what other answer would suffice? And again, just to hit this home, your questions and your doubts, what you're really longing for is not the answer. You're longing for the God behind it. A God who's approachable and personal and welcomes those things. time of communion we talked about this idea of the new covenant and, and at this, this this dinner table jesus broke his body and, and his blood um, on the cross and uh, communion is a remembrance of that um, 
we take time to remember that Jesus, you did these things for us so that I can be in right relationship with the personal and approachable God that you are. And so um, over the next song, you can step out of those side doors at any time. Um, we can walk out in the hallway and take it out there. We can't have any food or drink in here. Then you can come back in um, and continue to worship. I'm going to pray for us. God, we are thankful for you. We are thankful for the way you reveal yourself in scripture as beautiful, as loving, as kind, as approachable, as personal. And so God, I, I pray that everyone here sees you as just that through Christ. I pray that everyone here um, with their questions and with your doubts can still look at you and say, you are still approachable and personal. You are still lovely. And God, help us to realize it's not the answers we desire, but it's you. God, help us to reflect deeply upon um, what we're about to remember, um, just the shedding of your blood and the breaking of your body. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Amen.